Have a seat. We're going to be uh, continuing our study of First Timothy. Don't forget to press record on that, baby, because sometimes we forget. Um, we uh, are going verse by verse through Timothy. If you have not received a study guide yet, it will help you in our study. It'll be, uh, I'm not even sure what week we're on. I think week, oh, seven. And there's 13 weeks, so uh, this is good for um, just personal study, group study, if you're in a road group. And also there's a lot of stuff in the back for families. So I'd encourage you to get that. If they're out, then just please email info and we'll get you one. Um, and you'll notice when you go back to the info table, you see a Volkswagen bug back there. That's my new adventure. Half a bug, actually, that will be hanging right where your kids walk in at some point into the kids' road. So hopefully we'll secure it and won't fall on them. But we're going to begin uh, in Mark chapter 10 today. I know you're so excited to hear a sermon on deacons, but we believe that without question, all scriptures God breathed and God put it in the Bible for us to talk about and study and learn from. And so we're going to blow this up and you'll see uh, hopefully what God uh, would like you to see today. But we're going to begin in Mark 10 on a verse that I think I used, either that or the, the similar one that was in Matthew, um, that Jesus is speaking. I ended with last week. He's speaking to uh, his disciples, but in particular James and John, who made a request to him to sit on his left and right hands when he is glorified in his kingdom. And so he speaks about what it means to be great. And he says in verse 42 of chapter 10 in the book of Mark, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are completely centered on our worship and pursuit of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus is the example of what it means to be a spouse what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a friend, what it means to be a pastor, and perhaps even more prominently, what it actually means to be a deacon, which is maybe something we haven't really thought of, someone who serves. And sadly, in a lot of the churches I have been in, churches I've been in leadership in, have completely ignored the role of deacon in what I think is fulfilling. It's called to fulfill the mission of the church. And really the mission of maybe what all Christians are supposed to live out in their lives. And this is largely, I think, because service, the concept of service and serving, in particular the church, which is the context that Paul is writing in, the idea of service has been connected with functional duty and obligation as opposed to or has been disconnected with the gospel. And... Of course, we can see, I think, on a fleshly level, how preaching on Sunday or teaching in a Bible study or even leading you know, music on Sundays, well, that, that clearly proclaims and communicates the gospel. But we're hard-pressed to see, I think, how all of the little services that take place in this place, such as even making coffee or running a website or setting up and tearing down you know, chairs or cleaning the building once a week, we're hard-pressed, I think, to connect that with the gospel. We don't think that way. We don't talk that way. I don't think we behave that way. And it's unfortunate that these tasks that we maybe view now as mundane or meaningless or lesser are, in fact, actually, I think, the greater of tasks that we have requiring, quite frankly, greater kinds of servants 
and living out the gospel in maybe a way that's actually more in line with Jesus himself and how he lived than anything else. Deacons, unfortunately, or I should say it's not fortunately, are only mentioned twice in the Bible in describing it. There is a reference here and there, but really two places in the New Testament, both in relation to the elders and the leadership of the church because the two groups work so closely together. Philippians 1, I talked about last week, where identified deacons, and then today in 1 Timothy 3. And many churches take their model, though, for like, okay, we probably should have deacons, and so they go to Acts chapter 6. And if you know about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a narrative of the church and kind of its growth from its early inception on the day of Pentecost, about 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. It said, go wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out. It is, and then the church grows from there, and you see guys like Peter from deniers to just bold preachers for Jesus, and the church grows slowly. Thousands of people are coming, they're meeting, they're fellowshipping, they're, they're learning together, they're taking communion together, and then we get to Acts chapter 6, and you start to see complaints, which typically happens in a church, and some of the complaints are, though, that people are being overlooked in the distribution of food, and there's a lot of need, and they're not able, these, this kind of core of pastors, able to meet all the needs of everybody. So they decide, we need to put some men in charge of this. And so in Acts chapter 6, here's what they do in verse 3. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, that is, distributing the food, in particular to some widows that have been overlooked and making sure they're not... And verse 4, he says, but we, kind of the core leaders, the elders, the pastors, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the Word. And a lot of people go and say, there's deacons. That's what deacons are supposed to do. And sometimes this passage, is, it's a good description of what the church did, but it's not really prescriptive of necessarily what we should do exactly. We always should approach Scripture that way. Sometimes it's describing things that aren't necessarily prescribed, that commanded for us to do. And so... This passage in Acts 6 doesn't explicitly mention, well, these guys are deacons. But church history is kind of, you know, focused on these are probably what the deacons did in general. And so they use this as the model when I don't necessarily think it should be. It should be maybe used as a great example, but not the only model. But what I do see in the principles is that when senior level leadership, and that would be the pastors, the elders of the church, when they are overburdened because of growth, because of the number of just needs that are apparent, when they become overburdened to the degree that they're unable to study, to preach, to pray, to minister to things that are, honestly, they're called in particular to do, to teach God's Word, then they are free to appoint what we'll call pastoral assistants or deacons to help alleviate their burden and ultimately um, do lots of different things, even if the burden isn't exactly the same that we see here in Acts chapter 6. Now, deacons then, according to Scripture, are these official servants. Like, they're recognized as leaders, they have a title, who assist the elders in fulfilling their responsibility to shepherd the church. And we have deacons. We have deacons over women's ministry, men's ministry, community groups, and things like that, because I can't do everything, Jim can't do everything, Chris, we can't do everything, have our hands at... It ends up being very controlling in lots of ways and not equipping and releasing and identifying of leaders. So we have those deacons to assist what is ultimately our responsibility to what we'll be held accountable for in leading the church and continuing our mission. But the mission 
its success, its efficiency, um, its character ultimately, is all predicated on people like that serving and leading the gospel. And so you have these guys or girls that are really prominent leaders in your church that, honestly, in the past, a lot of churches have just identified as, oh, you're really skilled, so you should do this. Or there's a need here, and just because someone raises their hand, they fill it, and suddenly they're a deacon. Well, Paul is pretty clear that if you're going to put these people in these prominent positions where they are ultimately examples of more than just skill, but actually of the gospel character of your church, you need to have people that are qualified. And so he gives us qualifications in this passage for deacons, just as he gave qualifications for the primary leaders of the elders. And so we'll read in verse 8 of chapter 3 these qualifications for these servants who are helping the pastors. And he says this in verse 8, Deacons likewise. So he just talked about qualifications of the elders, and I was saying in the same way, same spirit. You'll see the only difference is that the deacons are not called to teach. They are not, that's not their primary responsibility, but the character-wise it's very similar. It says, Deacon likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless or similar to elders above reproach, above accusation, that type of thing. Their wives, likewise, can also be translated women, and we'll talk about that, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So the Greek word for deacon and its related verbs appear a hundred times in the New Testament. And it's only here and in Philippians 1.1, which I read last week, the term is actually translated deacon. Elsewhere it's translated all kinds of things. And it's translated English words such as to cared for, to minister, a servant, to serve, service, prepare, relief. And it's a word that's used to describe waiters at meals, so people who serve at like food, uh, a king's attendant. It's used to describe uh, soldiers and policemen who enforce justice. They play a deacon role, or it's the same word that's used as a servant. It's also used to describe the same word or similar or from the same root, uh, those who are servants of God, those who are servants of Jesus, those who are servants of the church, and those who are servants of Satan. Same word. Like, oh. And so the truth is, which isn't a big news flash, in a very real sense, we all serve someone. We all serve someone, something. We all act in this deacon way. And the very life, I believe, of a true Christian. Now, James, if you didn't, weren't here for that study, James is, makes some very clear lines says, there are people who are Christians and there are people who say they're Christians. So when I say genuine Christians, that's nothing that I can necessarily determine. That's something that, quite frankly, the Holy Spirit knows. We can see fruit, but I am very slow to make a final determination on that. Without question, a true Christian is a life of a deacon. Every Christian is supposed to be described, or should be described, as a deacon, a bondservant, as James called himself, of Jesus. And bond servants a very interesting thing. It's different than a slave. It's a slave that has been freed, and they choose to go and 
put themselves in the service of that master because they love that master so much and they honestly serve them forever as a bond servant. Very different than just being enslaved. Now, deacons are, by definition, a pure, I think, maybe the purest example of Jesus and how Jesus lived his own life. Writer uh, George Staub, we use this in our deacon training, he said this, from a book I think called Deacons and Evangelism. He said, everything that was done by the Son of Man who came. Jesus Christ. Everything, including humiliation, self-emptying, cross, and death, is summarized in eight letters. And he spells out the Greek word for deacon. D-I-A-K-O-N-I-A. Okay? Diakonia. The same single word also indicates the pattern of life for all who followed Jesus. They go into service. Service. They are other-directed. They find themselves among those in need. It has become their natural way. And they discover that they are being drawn into, the, into Jesus' diaconate and start participating in it. It's supposed to be descriptive. A deacon should describe all people who claim the name of Jesus, declare, Jesus is my Lord, because it is exactly like the life of Jesus. And the funny thing is, curious thing is, in Romans 12, everyone's heard of probably spiritual gifts, right? Maybe you've taken one of those spiritual gifts tests, okay? I don't really like the spiritual gift tests. They're helpful, but they're also like, well, I don't have that, so I don't have to do that type of thing. It's kind of how we sometimes use them. One of the gifts of the Spirit indicated in Romans 12 is service, okay? And it's kind of like evangelism. I hear a lot of people oftentimes use the excuse, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so they basically justify why they don't evangelize to anybody. Right? Well, I don't have that gift. It's not comfortable for me. That's ridiculous. Okay? Yes, there are people who are gifted evangelists. I know them. Like, they can't, they just bleed Jesus, talk about Jesus. People are coming to Jesus in flocks. Every time they run into someone on the street, they're like a magnet for brokenness and people, and they're always, I understand, they're people with that gift. But that doesn't preclude or justify the fact of us not evangelizing at all if we feel like we don't have that gift. We do the same with service. We're like, see Romans 12, we're like, gift of service, don't have that. Guess I don't have to serve. Okay? And there's all kinds of needs and opportunities to serve, and people go, well, I'm just not gifted that way. I don't have that desire. Well, there comes a point where we say, all Christians serve. And there are people without question with a gift of service. Okay? I have people, family members who... You can see them kind of, their, their love language, if you're familiar with that, that book, the, the five love, their, their language is service, right? They love by just doing and actively going. I say, man, that guy's got the gift of service. He's painting and mowing and doing all, that's how he loves. He may not say a word, but he'll do all kinds of things. I understand there's a gift of service there. But to say that, you know, I don't have that gift and so I can't serve or won't serve is to very much ignore the life of Christ who was the deacon. If you are a Christian, you are to serve. That is your calling. That is your identity. And the gift of serving, though, and even the act of serving as a Christian, is a little distinct from the office of being a deacon. And so what I say is distinct is that there are people that have the gift of serving and all of us serve, but then there are people that basically step into a place where they're going to be measured and held to a standard to serve the church in a more official capacity. And this is what Paul is talking about here. And I believe as church history evolved, you started off with something to describe everybody and then it evolved to a, a place of position because of need. That's what we see maybe in Acts chapter 6. 
But at Damascus Road, we believe that men and women can and should serve in the office of deacon. And our view of eldership and our view of deaconship comes not just from passages like this, although they're very helpful. They come from, it begins in the Old Testament, and we look at all of Scripture. And in all of Scripture, we see elders from the beginning and how God organized His people. We also see servants, and many of those servants were men and women, as far back as the Exodus, who served at the tent of meeting and what became the tabernacle and those types of things. We have men and women serving there. And the New Testament, we have men and women described as deacons, and then described in what they do in deacon-like ways, serving in this capacity. So in this particular passage, though, as we break it down, it's very confusing for a lot of people, a lot of disagreement. Here's how we view it, or how we see it. We believe the first verses, if we go 8 through 10, 8 through 10 describe what is qualifications for all deacons. If you are going to be a deacon at our church and fill this capacity, you meet these qualifications. Then we get to verse 11, which is a little... I guess, difficult if you just read it at first reading. And we believe that it uniquely focuses on women deacons. And verse 12 uniquely focuses on men deacons. And so ultimately we see all these qualifications for all, particularly for women as emphasis, and then particularly for men. And here's what it says in the first, uh, I guess, for all people and how it describes some of the qualifications for men and women. First of all, it says, must be dignified. And these, these qualifications are very similar to the eldership. But a man of dignity or a woman of dignity, someone who is revered, someone who is respected, and you go, what does that mean? A man who's just godly? That seems ambiguous. And what we've come, I guess, to an understanding is that it means someone who is solidly a biblical man or a biblical woman. And you can find examples and scriptures and evidence to indicate what that actually means. What it means to be a biblical husband, a biblical father, a biblical mom, a biblical wife. That is someone who is worthy of respect and worthy of imitation in the same way that the elders are. So deacons aren't just serving a function, although that primarily, yes, they are doing that. They are supposed to be people of character that the church can point to to say, live life like that individual. That gives you a very quick indication who is qualified and who is not, especially when someone becomes disqualified. If their house gets out of order, if they suddenly have a terrible experience or sin catches them, they're disqualified. And we will find someone to fulfill the function. But the function isn't primary. And that's generally how churches, I think, determine deacons. There's a need. We just want to fill that hole. It's supposed to be someone worthy of imitation, a man or woman of dignity. Also, number two, not double-tongued. Similar spirit to what James says, not double-minded, but this speaks to the mouth in particular. And what it belie- I believe it's talking about is integrity, a word we all use, and yet very few know what it actually means. We're like, yeah, well, I want to be a person of integrity. You should be a person of integrity. We want leaders of integrity. What does that mean? Well, here's what I believe it means, is that you say one thing, and you do the same thing you say. Or you say one thing over here, and you say the exact thing, same thing over here. And you see in politics and things like that, these kind of false dichotomies created of like, well, public life and private life. Sounds really, oh, of course. Well, think about that. I think that's ridiculous. Because what you're asking to do, if I have to step into politics, I have to basically divide myself and not be a person of integrity. And in order to be politically successful, I'm going to have to compromise some of the things that I personally agree or disagree with. That's not a person of integrity. And perhaps if that's what that position calls you to do, you shouldn't be in politics, is the reality. And it doesn't mean that 
there shouldn't be any Christians in politics. There should be tons of Christians in politics. But the reality is, if it means we can't be people of integrity in whatever role we have, there's no point in doing it. You cannot be, what he says, is double-tongued. And then not addicted to much wine. A little bit, but not much wine, right? No, not at all. Um, and what that means for people is ultimately it's free of addictions. Same thing they said for elders. And that can mean many different things. Seventy-eight 80% of men, this is a statistic that's thrown out, are addicted to pornography in the church. And the more and more people I meet, the more and more men I, I interact with, I think that statistic is pretty darn accurate, to be quite frank. And so if someone is struggling with alcohol, with drugs, with pornography, whatever it is, until they are free from that addiction, they are disqualified. Not disqualified from being a biblical man or disqualified from being a person who is pursuing Jesus, but from leading, they're disqualified. And for some people, that might actually mean you abstain forever. A lot of churches take, because it says elders and deacons, that leadership should abstain from all alcohol and things of that nature. Um, I understand the spirit of that. I think it's misguided, but it is wise for people to recognize if you are weak, you should abstain. It is more glorifying for you to abstain for some of you. And it's more glorifying for others not to. It just depends. And it's not just holistically, well, let's just be safe, better safe than sorry. I think you'll be sorry if you take that position. Okay? Bound for disaster, what I believe, or at least legalism. Number four is not greedy for all uh, deacons, and that makes sense because a lot of deacons handle money, handle distribution of things. And if you put a person that's greedy in there, like Judas, picking out of the treasure box, he might have a problem. And so deacons are, are honestly installed that are going to be given a lot of responsibility. And if you're going to give them responsibility, you better not put a person in there that's greedy or in there for selfish gain. And sometimes you learn that the hard way because people are really good at faking you out. Um, but the reality is you have to make an effort to protect uh, the church and the flock by not installing people who are greedy. And then lastly, it says faith and a clear conscience. And I think at the core of this is that he or she must believe the gospel first and foremost, but they actually must live the gospel. Their belief in the gospel should be evident in how they behave, evident in how they talk, evident in how they relate to people. They need to live the gospel. And I love how, how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 1.12. And this should be something we should all aspire to be able to say, uh, or to say about our deacons, to say about our elders. And here's what he says. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. The reality is, people are very good at faking religiosity and not actually believing the gospel. And it takes time to determine. That's why he says test. Test people. And this isn't, you know, here's an exam for you to take. And if you pass, you, you, you know, can be a deacon. Or if you fail, you shouldn't be. This is a time test. That I'm going to watch you. We're going to measure you. We're going to spend time getting to know you. Getting in your family, getting in your life and seeing, man, are you a qualified leader? Are you a guy that's worthy of, or a girl worthy of imitation? We need to know that. And the reality is our deacon training, and even some, a lot of aspects of our elder training, which has evolved, our deacon training has a lot to do with self-reflection. And we sit down and we go, this is what a deacon is. This is more than just a function. This is someone who is proclaiming the gospel, setting an example for the church, all these things. And then we go, okay, you need to reflect and ask yourself these hard questions and come back and we'll discuss them. And we've had a lot of people, I shouldn't say a ton, but we've had a number of people go through the deacon training, 
and several of them disqualify themselves. Praise God, at least in the deacons, we have to say, dude, you're not qualified. But we certainly will if we have to. But after sitting in reflection and prayerful reflection and biblical reflection, you begin to see, or they should see, that you're not qualified. doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it does mean that without question, you're not qualified here and need to pursue God here and those types of things. So we do test. We do test. Now, verse 11, I think it specifically or addresses specifically female deacons. And I think he's taking a moment to distinguish women as opposed to men here because women, just as men do, have unique weaknesses or temptations, what have you. And I think this passage, just reading different people, they come to kind of, they can mean three different things in terms of the women they're talking about in this passage because it does say uh, women or wives likewise. It could be speaking of the wives of the deacons, which without question is an important thing to consider. I think the wife of a husband is a pretty good indicator of what that marriage looks like. And so the woman should be involved in some level in that study or that testing, if you will, to figure out what's this marriage actually like. We do that with our elders. We ask them really hard questions, and we do that with our deacons. And so it could be the wives of deacons. It could mean just women who assist the deacons, which is possible. It could also mean, and we know that because in chapter 5, which... Uh, I believe Chris will preach on, we talk about widows. There is a group of women that are they're helping distribute food and whatnot to, as widows. They're working for the church, so could mean that. And number three are women who are actually deacons. And so we say, I think it can mean all three, but we take our understanding, not just from here, from largely uh, a larger view of the entire scripture, but we believe that this is talking about unique qualifications for female deacons. And so it says, again, repeating, that the woman should be dignified, and I believe revered and respected for being a woman. That's how, we, how would you say someone is dignified? How are they worthy of respect or worthy of imitation? Well, for women, it's imitated in a particular way. You'd want other women following this woman as well. Um, it also goes on to say not slanderers, which I believe some translations will say not malicious gossips. I think it's important that that's emphasized, not that men are precluded from ever gossiping, but it's not the norm for men. It's not typically what their greatest struggle or weakness is. Yes, they do gossip, okay? But not like women. You guys have perfected it, okay? You're really good at it. I remember sitting, I was a coach for girls' soccer, and I could not believe, I was a coach for boys' soccer and girls' soccer. You want to hear the most terrible, horrific things about other girls, you go ahead and spend time on a school bus with a bunch of high school girls, and you start hearing stuff you never thought possible to come from the mouths of teenage girls. And they are mean, ruthless. I know there are no teenage girls like that here, but without question, that's the truth. They gossip, and they're good at it, and they slander. And so James makes a particular point in his uh, letter to emphasize the terribleness of the tongue. And it says that it is a world of iniquity, which sounds like a lot. A lot of bad stuff, okay? That it's set on fire by hell. You're like, that's pretty bad, I think. The tongue is dangerous and terrible, and women, honestly, are often disqualified from leading because they can't control their tongues. Okay? Same with men, but Paul emphasizes it here with women as a thing that's primarily a good disqualifier. Sober-minded, we know it's not necessarily talking about sobriety and addictions. We've already seen that at the beginning, but it certainly could. I always take this mean more of sober judgment. Okay? Why? Would you say this for women? Okay. Here's a news flash for you. 
which won't be a newsflash at all. Women have a tendency, not always, because right now you think of five different exceptions, women have a tendency to be governed by their emotions and decision-making. Men have a tendency not to, be, not to listen to emotions at all. Okay, That's a problem too. But for women, what that can often lead to is hasty, impulsive decisions that are not necessarily the right decisions, but they feel really good. Okay? What does that mean for deacons? Well, we have a lot of benevolence, right? And so we hear all kinds of stories come through. Stories that for guys quickly go, that's a bunch of BS, right? They just like, whatever. They ignore it. They don't listen to their heart. They don't try to be empathetic at all. Maybe that's just me. But then there are the women who will be like, oh, here. You know, here's a check. Here's this. We'll serve you. We'll give. Because they just want to help. And so, so that sober-minded judgment is for the women to be able to kind of keep that emotion in check a little bit and make discerning or discern and make wise judgments which is the tendency to make judgments governed by emotion. And guys need to come a little more emotion, and my wife helps me with that. Last, for women in particular, it says faithful in all things, which, again, I believe she must be trustworthy in all things that she has been charged to take care of first, which is primarily the home. Um, a woman should not be leading as a deacon if she is not leading her home first. She's not ministering to her husband first. Her first role is to be a bride and a mom. Okay? And if that's not squared away, then that is disqualifying. And she should be demonstrating basically her faithfulness in all things by being a co-manager with her husband of the home. And if she's not married, without question, she can still manage and has to manage a lot more by herself. Uh, but she can still do that uh, with excellency. Oh, excellence. So then verse 12, I believe, shifts back into male deacons again. And he starts focusing on the unique qualifications uh, for men as deacons, and that's why you see husband of one wife. Okay, most important thing for a deacon is the most important thing for an elder that they are a one woman man, that they are faithful if they are married to that marriage. They are loving their bride, taking care of their bride, making sure she is number one in their, in his in his life. And he must have a pure and godly marriage. At least that is his pursuit primarily. And oftentimes you see servants of the church laying their marriage on the altar as they go to do church work. Wrong, sinful, broken, dangerous, evil in lots of ways. Okay? Without question, as I sat down with Kalen, when we were going to pursue a church plan, I said, look, there are going to be sacrifices. That has a discussion. But it's not going to be a sacrifice of her or my children. But as a family, we're going to make sacrifices, and we have. Life is a little different than it was as a teacher when my contract ended at 2.20, and my wheels were driving off of campus at 2.21. Okay? Without question, it's different. But not to the extent where I'm sacrificing what my primary responsibility is. And if I am, the elders should call me in it. And if I haven't repented, I should be fired. Okay? Everyone heard that. My family and my wife is number one. More important than you. Love you, but not as much as them. And I don't love them as much as I love Jesus. Okay? Make sense? Good. Excellent. Now, the last one, men managing their children and managing the household. Without question, this isn't just, well, the male deacons are doing the female. No, but again, the responsibility and the headship is focused on the man. So without question, male deacons, as with elders, they need to manage every aspect of their home if they're going to help manage the church which is the finances, the time, the possessions they have, anything associated with managing the home they need to do. 
So those are the qualifications, and there are qualifications for um, men and women as deacons. And even if um, you don't fulfill the official office as a deacon, all men and women should aspire to these things. But without question, there's going to be a few people who aspire to the office or who serve in the church, and there's a lot of people who do. But I think even qualified leaders, and this is where I think Paul goes, even qualified leaders can lead and serve for the wrong reasons. And he says in verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the question for everyone, even if you are not a deacon, but you're a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, if you're a servant in the church, serving some way, the question for all of us, the question for myself, is why do you serve? Why do you serve? Let me talk to the people first that don't serve at all. Of course, there are those people in here and in the other service and who don't go to our church or at least aren't attending this week who don't serve. Now, I say you don't serve. You do serve. You just um, don't serve anybody else. And that's guilty. That's most of us. All of us at some level. We are very good at serving ourselves. It's like it comes naturally. Right? And Jesus saw that because when He told us to love our neighbor, He said, well, love your neighbor as yourself. Implying that our default mode is to love ourselves, which He doesn't have to teach us about. So, okay, I'll just do what I normally do, which is serve and love myself for others. But most of us, or a lot of us, don't. Our default mode, I think, is basically to stop at being self-pleasing. And what we do when we make decisions, we, we do what's comfortable, we do what's personally rewarding or a benefit to us, as opposed to anything, anything that might require just uh, sacrifice or might not guarantee us some kind of reward that we think is valuable. Regard, money, power, or whatever. Okay? Now, we place ourselves, I think, at the center of this, this universe, the world and the solar system and the universe centers around me, and we go, well, I'm not, you have this kind of I'm not responsible mentality, and we ignore what are the obvious, genuine needs right in front of us that we could help with. But, you know, it's not going to really help me, and I'm not responsible for it ultimately, and so we choose not to. Catch this. Refusing to serve whether it be as official deacon or just as a servant, as we're all called to be. Refusing to serve, refusing to meet the needs of those who cannot give you anything is a denial of the Gospel. It's a denial of the Gospel. It is the very opposite of how Jesus lived. It's the very opposite. Let me prove it. Philippians chapter 2. Heard this verse before? Jim preached a great sermon on it. You should download it, but it will be convicting, so be careful. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. What's that mean? Pretty obvious. But also to the interests of the others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours 
in Christ Jesus. Translated, if you're a Christian, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he made himself nothing. Ask yourself a great question. When's the last time you made yourself nothing? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the attitude of Jesus. That is belief in the gospel lived out. Now, without question, there are seasons of rest. The Old Testament talks about when men got married. They were supposed to take a year off, I believe, from, from serving in the, in the military. I think it's a glorious thing. Helps them focus on what is most important. But without question, there, there are seasons of rest where you need to be ministered to, where you need to, to not serve somewhere. I've often told people, come, and they were in leadership, and they burn. I said, don't serve. Don't serve for a while. Just sit and feed and rest and heal, and then the season will come to an end. The season will come to an end, right? Well, I'm just in spring right now, or winter, and it's been a lot. Winter stops. Sometimes a long time around here, but it does stop. The rain does stop, okay? And so you start to serve, and abandoning those service to the people of God and a I believe is an abandoning of the gospel. And it's a gospel that says we've been made to serve. I should say we've been remade to serve. And he has wonderfully given us a family enslaved to one another where we, a lot of the commands, honestly, to blank one another can't even be done outside of serving in a community. For those who serve, though, for those who serve, and we have many people here at serve, we have an inordinate, crazy amount of kids, like 120 plus now, I think, okay? And you see everyone with babies? We're growing our church lots of different ways, right? Babies are popping up all the time, like, praise Jesus, 121, okay? That's kids under the age of 10 or 11, I believe, okay? Hugely inordinate amount for a church of our size, and we have an inordinate amount of people serving, which is a good, God-glorifying thing. I appreciate it, and it's not just with kids, it's all over. But without question, you have to ask yourselves, just as Paul talks about what you're going to gain, what do you hope to gain in doing this? Why are you serving, really? And there is a real danger in deacons or anyone that serves, serving without being centered in the gospel. Oftentimes, those who serve, at a church in particular, this is the context of which Paul is writing, get into a people-pleasing mentality where they're serving for the approval of men or to avoid the disapproval of men. They serve out of duty, and there is a righteous sense of duty. But I'm talking about the bad part of duty. Out of guilt and obligation to the pastor to friends. I always felt bad for friends who I had when we first started playing the church. Like they feel like, well, okay, I got to really help Sam. You know, he's kind of doing this thing and it'll make him feel bad. I'm not going to leave, although he sucked. I'm not going to leave, right? I, I felt bad for them because it, and it's really a bad motivation. I understand it's loving. But without question, we get to a place where we're trying to please the pastor, trying to please friends, trying to please God. 
want people to like us and, and not dislike us, and so they serve. And I really believe that when service to your church, <clears throat> service to your family, as a husband, a wife, as a mom, dad, service to God becomes primarily duty, you've lost. People don't evangelize because they, they I honestly believe, don't believe the gospel deep enough, but they do it out of duty and it's just like, it feels yucky and gross and it's like, instead of expressing, I don't care if you come to know Jesus, here's what he did, it's amazing. When you get to a place of duty, I think you've lost. Try telling your bride like, well, I love you because it's my duty to love you. Or your kids, well, I really dislike you right now, but it's my duty to be your father. And I honestly, there are times like that. Let's be honest. There are times like that where like duties, like, you're lucky that you came from me because I can't leave right now, right? Okay? <laughs> I understand that. But primarily duty, only duty, if that's why you're doing it, there's a problem. There's a problem. Consider this obscure verse, which I, I like out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. As, as God and Moses is actually repeating some of the condemnation that, that God has brought to the Israelites because of their idolatry. And he says in verse 47 of chapter 28, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Sounds like the opposite. You know, it sounds like duty, I should say. Because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Because you served the Lord your God, or sorry, did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Can't manufacture joy. Can't manufacture gladness of heart. You can fake us all out, but you certainly can't fake Jesus out. And if we are serving, quite frankly, where we're driven primarily by duty and not the joy of the gospel, there's a problem, and it's borderline or maybe just flat out is sinful. I guess I would rather um, have someone serving with joy and gladness in our heart who's totally unqualified skill-wise than the opposite. And if you're serving now in whatever capacity and in kids' ministry, because there's a lot of people there, and you're not doing it with gladness and joy in Jesus and what he has poured out for you, I'd rather you not. And Jim right now is going, oh my gosh, what did you just say? Okay? <laughs> but I hope you hear my heart on that. Because I know of churches and pastors that, that can get controlling and just like, you need to serve, you need to serve. And I don't ever want to be that, but I still want people to serve. Our service for all Christians, is supposed to be driven by the Gospel. By the fact that Jesus knows all of your dirt and brokenness and yet pursued us and died for sinners where we deserve to die and buried all of our brokenness with Him and then rose us up to live new lives empowered by the Spirit to give Him glory, which is our joy. Our service is not supposed to be self-pleasing or people-pleasing. It's supposed to be Jesus-pleasing. I know it makes it sound like works-based righteousness, but let me just hang with me. 
Our motivation is supposed to come in the confidence of, of not even our own work, but the work of Jesus. Not in the approval of others, but in the fact that Jesus has already accepted us. And a deep belief in the cross, I believe, is what keeps us from duty-driven mentality. And if it gets to duty, it's only a little bit of time before you get weary of it and tired of it and you get bitter about doing it. And the problem is everything to do with the gospel, not the duty, not the job itself. That's to do with your belief and acceptance and deep, deep belief in the gospel. It's not an abandonment of all duty, because I think that's healthy to have a sense of that. But it's an understanding that our sense of duty has been transformed into this bond slave of Jesus. We've been freed from slavery, and then we get to serve Jesus. To honor Him because He ultimately made much of Himself for us. And so we love and we sacrifice and catch this for anyone who serves. We serve for the joy and the glory of God. Not to be made much of ourselves, but to make much of Him. And in essence, we live out our belief in the Gospel every time. We paint a wall. We lead a Bible study. We help in kids' ministry. We print a bulletin. We, we serve by playing music. We vacuum the carpets. We move half a Vita bug into the building, which was my idea. I realized that. Strange. You write an article. You set up a chair. We serve because of not how it's going to benefit us. We serve to the glory of God. And we serve regardless of who shows up. Catch that? But I prepared this Bible study. And, and the, regardless who shows up, it's still glorifying. Music, they play and they lead in worship regardless if anyone sings. You ask him a real good question. If no one sings, are you glorifying God less? No, that's the right answer, whoever said that little kid. Okay? No, that's right. Little preacher. We serve regardless of who shows up. We serve regardless of who thanks us. We serve regardless of who abuses or criticizes us. We serve regardless of who participates and who doesn't, who notices and who doesn't, because we know that God sees it. And we know that our service is to magnify what God has done for us, not to get something. And in the end, we serve not to become spiritual, which a lot of people try, right? Don't make me religious to serve. We serve because we are spiritual. We are new creatures. We have been transformed to have this new life received from the Spirit with new desires to pursue God in everything we do. That's why we serve. And instead of working to please pastors or please friends or even please God, we work because God is already pleased with us in Jesus. That's why we work. And it should bring us joy. Paul closes in verse 14 to 16 by talking about really the church at large. I love this passage. It gives um, great clarity to what the purpose of 1 Timothy is. And he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things, young Timothy, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God 
a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And he gives the gospel. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He ends this this section, this chapter, if you will, by reminding Timothy how important this letter is. And how essential what he has written even up to this point. Remember, he's written about false teachers, about being centered on the gospel and doctrine, about leaders, about those who assist the leaders. Important, essential stuff for every church. Establishes how Christians ought to behave as the church. How we in many ways ought to serve what the church is and what the church does. And he uses three different descriptions. He says we are the household of God. The household of God. And reminds Timothy that the, the members of this local church are supposed to live and function as a family. And some of you, that's frightening right now because your families are messed up. Mine is too, okay? But a God-centered, gospel-centered, purified, holy family of God where we're all adopted into this new one family. And thinking this way should color how we interact with one another, how we serve one another, how we celebrate together, how we deal with conflict together. It's a family. And we don't... We basically act and breathe as if we're brothers and sisters. And I'm not the dad. Jesus is the dad. And you and I are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. You could avoid you know, the confusion by not calling me pastor. I know that's honorable. But I'm Sam. You read the little bulletin, you'll find I'm a pretty freaky guy. I really like peanut butter mayonnaise and pickle sandwiches, and that's true. They're really good. Don't knock it till you try it. But I gave you a little bio in there, so look, I'm normal, like you. Love 80s pro wrestling. I think it's awesome. The new stuff's terrible. But Animal Steel, George Animal Steel, you remember those, right? Everyone's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I love it. You know, whatever. I'm normal, struggling through life also. Pursuing Jesus also. Resisting sin also. We're a family. Sharpening one another and we should serve one another. It's not serving the building or serving the organization. It's serving our family. He also says we're the church of the living God. The assembly. Timothy is is leading the assembly of God's people. And God's assembly, since the Old Testament, always lived and looked different than the rest of the world. As God's assembly, we come together on Sunday mornings. We gather as the church, which the most of the world doesn't do. You realize this. Most of the world does not come together. Most of the world is maybe not even up yet, right? They come in, we come in, we sing to Jesus. That's kind of weird. We take communion. We hear the word proclaimed. We are unique people. We are an assembly, assembly together, gathering as the church Together. And we do things differently than the world. But God gives us letters like this to say, look, there is an order to things. Not just chaos, not just random whatever. There is a way, if you will, to serve one another. And this word is our guidebook. And First Timothy is a great, and Second Timothy and Titus are fantastic for specifically how the church is to behave. How we are to serve one another. And lastly, it says that we are the pillar and the buttress of truth and gives him this architectural image which is interesting for Ephesus because they have this 
incredible temple to Diana that has 127, I think, pillars in it. So he is trying to distinguish the idolatry that's in this city. Say we are a, a, a building, if you will. We're not the foundation. I think that's huge. We don't add to the foundation of our building. We build and we grow by the grace of Jesus. We don't add a little uh, you know, addendum there to the side with new foundation piece. There's one foundation that never changes. We can add a deck maybe so we can, you know, you don't have to add a foundation for that. Nice little, you know, extension. But ultimately, we are building on the one foundation and we are called together to defend and serve the truth. Who is Jesus? We are to defend the truth together. That's what's most important, as he says in that first chapter. So not only serving one another, we are serving the truth. We are serving Jesus, primarily, first and foremost. And he ends by saying, great indeed, we confess. Great is our confession. Remember, Ephesus' idol of choice was Diana or Artemis. Depending if it's, I think Artemis is the Roman one. I don't know which one's which, right? But they say in Ephesians, or Acts 19, there's a big riot ensues. All the silversmiths are getting ticked because basically people are stopping worshiping idols and that's kind of costing them money and they get upset and they all flock 20 some odd thousand people into this theater and they gather together in one voice. They go, read in Acts 19, great is Artemis! Great is Artemis! Paul says, no! Great indeed is our confession. Great is Jesus of Nazareth. In everything. Great is Jesus. Number one. His bride is fantastic too, but great is Jesus. Yeah, pastors, there's some godly ones in it, but great is Jesus. Servants and deacons, yeah, there, you know, there's some good people who have served, but great is Jesus. It always goes back to Jesus. And if we're not declaring Jesus, we are failing as a church. Failing. The service that we do, whether you're deacon officially or not, takes many forms, but it all has the exact same purpose, which is to confess the gospel. And so, if you hold babies, my prayer is that you're driven and motivated and you see that you're holding babies during service for the gospel. That you are greeting people at the door if you, if you are doing that for the gospel. You're painting walls in this church for the gospel. You are making coffee as... That kind of seems strange. Making coffee with gospel intentionality. You're publishing stuff on the website, loading up podcasts, whatever is for the gospel. You're writing the spectacle. We are hosting rock concerts or parenting classes for other communities. Whatever we do here is intending to point to Jesus, even vacuuming on Saturday mornings. It's to point to what Jesus has done for us. All of our service, everything we do is a response to the gospel. And all of our service is a proclamation of that gospel, even if we don't use words. I pray we do at times, a lot of the time, but it's still a proclamation of the gospel. Whatever function, if you serve here, and I pray more will serve here, Know that it's part of the mission. It's not just people play music and Sam or whoever gets to preach and leading Bible studies. We're all on gospel mission together to make, to ultimately know Jesus ourselves and make Him known. That's it. There's your mission. And so the question is, are you serving? 
Knowing when I say that, what the motivation should be. Are you serving and are you contributing to the mission of God's church? And then if you are serving, ask yourself why. Why are you serving? And then start wondering and meditating on how your service is proclaiming the gospel. Because it is. And as you come up here and we take communion, we declare the gospel, we declare the glories of Jesus, that his blood has been shed and, and cleansed all my dirt that he saw way before I would even admit that it was there. And the body was broken him as he died in my place and rose again to live. As you declare those things, know that the very thing you declare as you take communion is the thing you declare as you serve. You declare and model and imitate the very act of of Jesus, who is the servant of all. Let's pray. Father, I pray You will make us servants, bond servants with desires to honor You and to glorify You and to make much of You. Let us not be driven by shallow and hollow duty, by attempting to please people, by self-serving and pleasing ourselves, but ultimately in response to how You have served us. May all that we say and do be a proclamation and a response to the Gospel. Help us to proclaim Your name, to make it known by how we serve in all humility, whether we are recognized or not, because in that You are glorified. In Your Son's blood we pray. Amen.